When you worship God, it will change everything about you. It doesn't change God, it changes you. And not only that, but it's a lifestyle. That worship, true worship, is a lifestyle. And it becomes a lifestyle where God is constantly changing you. I can honestly say, I thank God that I'm not the Randy that I used to be even 10 years ago. This morning, we're, like I said, we're going to do things a little bit different. I know that you can tell we're set up for communion, and we're going to do that. But I want you to understand the real meaning and the real story behind what we're going to do today. And, and so I'm going to take you back. I'm going to take you back in time for a little bit. And, 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 and it's all got to do with what we've been talking about. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about worship and how that worship is the priority of the believer or must become the priority of the believer in our lives, that we, that must be the most important thing. God, the most important thing in our lives should be, God, we want to worship you. We want to declare the greatness of you. We want to extol you. We want to just tell you how great you are. And, 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 and we talked about worship. And the last couple of weeks, we highlighted a few points on worship that in order to comprehend worship, one must understand God. You must understand who God is, how great he is, how powerful and mighty he is, how loving he is to really worship the object, God himself. You've got to come to an understanding of who God is and who you are. Who God is and who you are. And what is worship? We worship that which is worthy. We worship that which is of great value. And you can look at people's life, and you can tell what they esteem highly, what they think about most of all. You can just tell that by the way they live. Amen? You can. You can tell what they value, what's the most important thing in their life by the way a person lives. And we worship that which is worthy, that which is of great value to us. And that worship is transformational. When you worship God, it will change everything about you. It doesn't change God, it changes you. And not only that, but it's a lifestyle. That worship, true worship, is a lifestyle, and it becomes a lifestyle where God is constantly changing you. I can honestly say, I thank God that I'm not the Randy that I used to be even 10 years ago. God is changing me. God is just changing me inside and out, and I'm so excited about what God is doing in me, and not just in me, but in you. And then last week, we talked about 1 John, and I want to kind of read that again. 1 John, the fourth chapter, just two verses there, where Jesus began to talk about worship. He has a dialogue with a Samaritan woman, and Jesus described what he expects as a worshiper, what God expects from a worshiper. As believers, and I want to hear this, as believers, we are called of God, we are called to worship God in spirit and truth. This is what he said to the woman. He said in verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is a spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now we're called to worship. 
God in spirit and in truth. And when Jesus came to the earth, and I want you to hear this very clearly, because I could be misunderstood, and I don't want to be misunderstood. In fact, I asked the team, pray that I can communicate clearly today. When Jesus came to earth, he came and fulfilled God's promise to Abraham. He came and fulfilled God's promise to Abraham. Do you remember what the promise to Abraham was? I'm going to bless you. Those that bless you, I'm going to bless them. Those that curse you, I'm going to curse them. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm paraphrasing that. I'm going to bless the world through you. When Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of the, the promise that God gave to Abraham. That God wasn't going to just bless the Israelite nation. He wasn't going to just bless the Jews. He wasn't going to just bless the lineage of Abraham. But he's going to bless the entire world. And that entire world includes you. You got to get that. Jesus came to fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham. And and to replace, I want to emphasize that, and to replace the covenant God had made with Israel. Pause there. Jesus came to fulfill the promise of Abraham, to Abraham, and to replace God's covenant with Israel. Now, don't lose me. You got to follow me. You see, the promise was given by God when he established his covenant with Abraham, and the covenant with Abraham was going to be replaced as prophesied by Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verse 31 through 34, I want you to notice the words of the prophet Jeremiah that God speaks. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, hear that, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them all, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make, the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put their laws, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So this morning, for just a moment, I want us to look at why we worship God through Jesus Christ. And in order to really understand this, we've got to go kind of back and discover something about 
the past. And this morning, for just a moment, we're going to talk about, and then we're going to go right into the life of Christ for a moment, but we're going to talk about ancient covenants. Ancient covenants. What was a covenant? A covenant is an arrangement or contract in a relationship. Can I say that again? A covenant is an arrangement or contract in a relationship. Now, in ancient times, there were three types of covenants, and we're going to put them on the board right here. First of all, there was what is called a bilateral parity treaty. A bilateral parity treaty. Now, to understand what this is, you need to understand that a bilateral is between two. Okay? It's between two people, two parties, two groups of people. You know, it's like, a, if you want to know what it's like, it's like a business contract. It's like when two equals come together and they're going to agree that if you will do this, I will do that. If you'll do this for me, I will do this for you. And as long as you abide by this agreement, as long as you abide by this covenant, things will go just fine. But the moment that you don't do your part, then I don't have to do my part. It's a bilateral parity treaty. And you might want to think it like a business contract, so to speak. Both parties who are equal come together and they agree on certain terms that they will fulfill their obligation as long as the other one fulfills their obligation, okay? Do you understand that? Okay, second of all, there's what is known as a bilateral suzerain, suzerain treaty. A bilateral suzerain treaty. Now, this type of covenant or this type of arrangement or agreement is this. It's kind of like a king and vassal. Do you know what a king is? Okay, do you know what a vassal is? A vassal is someone that is not, doesn't have the same power, doesn't have the same authority as the king. He doesn't have the same goods or the same uh, way. I, I like to use it like this. I like to use it as a father and daughter. And I use that term daughter. Because when your kids grow up, you are the one as the parent, as the father or mother, either way you want to use it, but I'm going to use it as a father. As a father, when your kids grow up, you have all the authority, right? You have all the, whatever you say goes. Or it better go. It better go. Well, when my kids were growing up, and Kelly, and Kelly, of course, is the oldest, so we started with her, and I hope that Chris learned some lessons from her. But we started with her, and we had an arrangement. Kelly, I will get you a car. I will give you the keys to the car. I will pay the insurance on the car. I'll even put the cash in the car. As long as... As you are home by 10 o'clock. And as long as you tell me where you're going and where you're going to be at. Amen? Okay, you get ready. Get ready, Tina and Greg. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Listen, I'll be glad to support you. I'll be glad to take care of you. I'm, I'm going to give you the keys to the car. I'm going to let you, in fact, I, I'll let you even drive my car sometimes. Not very often, but I'll let you drive it sometimes. Special occasion. But as long as you understand that you obey my rules and don't deviate. Never deviate from the plan. If you're telling me you're going to so-and-so's house, that's where you better be. 
And when it's time to be home, you better be home at that time. Because if you deviate from the plan, guess what? You get grounded. Somehow she knows that. You get grounded. The keys get taken away. The privileges get taken away. The blessings get taken away. And you are grounded. This bilateral suzerain treaty was what me and my children had as long as they were under our house. King and vassal, father and parent, or father and child, mother and child. It was also the type of covenant that God had with the children of Israel. This was a bilateral suzerain treaty. That as long I, what, what did he say? When he came, delivered them from the hand of Egypt, from the bondage of Egypt, and brought them out of the, uh, the, the land of slavery and was bringing them into the promised land, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he said, listen, I am the Lord your God. I'm the king. You're the vassal. As long, I'm going to give you some new guidelines. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some guidelines. And why God did this is because they're a, new, they're a new society. God is establishing a new culture. He's establishing a new group of people. He's establishing a new nation. And so since he's establishing a new nation, you need some guidelines to live by. So he gives them some guidelines. I am the Lord your God. Don't make any idols. Don't worship any other God. And he gave these guidelines. And he says, as long as you do these things, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will protect you. You will defeat your enemies. You will have provision. You'll never go without. You will be blessed. You will never be the borrower. You'll always be the lender. God gave all of these benefits and blessings to the children of Israel. But he said, this is a bilateral suzerain treaty, a covenant. As long as you do these things, this is what I'm going to do for you. And they lived that way for a while. And then what did they do? What did they do? They became unfaithful to the Lord. They broke the covenant. They broke the treaty. They broke the promise that they made to God. And eventually God would get their attention, bring judgment upon them and everything, trying to get their attention. And, and, and finally, you know, God just said, okay. And he turned them over to Babylon for 70 years into captivity. This was a bilateral suzerain treaty. You keep do you do what I say? You live according to my guidelines, according to my promises or my word? Then I will make sure that everything is taken care of you in your life. And then there was the third treaty, which is called a promissory covenant. A promissory covenant. And this is where one party, now I want you to get this, one party binds themselves to an obligation to take care of you, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, one party binds himself to an, ob, to an obligation for the benefit of the other party. I want to say that again because I want you to get it. One party binds themselves to an obligation for the benefit of the other party. A type of covenant back in the Old Testament was the, the covenant that God made with Abraham. He told Abraham in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, and again in chapter 15, he says, Abraham, Abraham, 
I, I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your nation. I want you to leave your country. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give to you. And I want you to know those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. And I will make you into a great nation. You will be blessed. And not only that, but I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world through you. Now, notice something about this covenant. It was not a bilateral suzerain treaty. God obligated, hear me, God obligated himself to Abraham, whether Abraham obeyed or not. Whether you join with me, whether you agree with me, whether you do what I say, I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to provide, I'm still going to make you into a great nation, and I'm still going to bless the nations of the world through your lineage. And Abraham believed. Abraham believed. It wasn't, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. It was a promissory covenant. I'm obligating myself to you for the benefit of you. I'm obligating myself to you for the benefit of you. Now, this is important. And when they would make this covenant, any of these covenants, they would have a procedure, and it's found in Genesis, the 15th chapter. This, this covenant would be binding, and what they would do, they would take a calf or a lamb or a goat or whatever, some type of animal, several, sometimes several types of animals, and they would take the animal and split the animal right down the middle. Split it. This covenant, every covenant here, was, was agreed and, and, and not only agreed upon, but they would take, a, 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 I want to say this right, uh, they would split the animal, and they would take the animal and lay it to the side, lay it in half. And then if it was a bilateral party treaty or the bilateral suzerain treaty, both parties would walk between the animals, right between them. They would lay, if it was a calf, they would lay it to the side on each side, and they would walk together between the sacrifice, between whatever animal they chose. And as they walked together, they were saying, this is what they were saying in this uh, uh, situation. They were making a commitment. And they were saying, may it be done to me as it is to this animal if I violate any term of this agreement. Wow. May it be done to me. My, may my life be taken if I violate any terms of the covenant. But when there was a promissory covenant made and there was a sacrifice made and the calf or the whatever was laid open to the side, there was only one party that walked through that. And it was one that was making the obligation to benefit the other. Now, I want you to know something. Let, I want you to go to Genesis 15 chapter because this is powerful to me. In Genesis the 15 chapter, I want to, I'm going to read this because I want you to get it. After this word, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And, since, and, and the one who will inherit my estate is, is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so the servant, so a servant in my household will be my heir. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now notice the next part, verse 8, or verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring, uh, uh, verse 8, but Abraham, O sovereign Lord, how can I know, how can I know that I will gain possession of it, the promised land? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years of old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. Now notice verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land. Now notice, Abraham did not pass between the pieces. God obligated himself to Abraham for the benefit of Abraham. And he obligated himself by, this is what I want you to do. It's customary. This is what I want you to do. And he passed between the calves or the, the two pieces, the halves. Stating to Abraham, I will fulfill this commitment that I have made to you. It was a promissory covenant. So we kind of get an idea about this covenant. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to fast forward in time, and I want you to turn with me to John, St. John, the 11th chapter. John, the 11th chapter. And very quickly, I want us to look at the last few days of Jesus' life up until the Passover. We find in John, the 11th chapter, verse 38 through, 30, uh, through 44, and I'm not going to read all that, but we find that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And because, because he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we find that the Pharisees and the religious leaders sought and plotted to kill Jesus. Why? Why would they do that? Because Jesus had become so popular, so popular that they were afraid that he was going to destroy the old system. He was afraid that they were going to take their jobs, that he was going to become the king and the priest. 
And they were so afraid of what Jesus was going to do that they plotted to kill Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And not only that, I wanted to notice the words that they did. As they plotted, they made a plan. In verse 55, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, now this is six days, or not, I won't say this is six days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone, anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. They had plotted to arrest Jesus. And you'll find in another verse, not only did they plot to arrest Jesus, but they were going to kill him when there was no crowd. He was, they were going to arrest him and get him when there was no crowd in silence because of the popularity, because if they capture him in a crowd, they were afraid that they were going to be, that there was going to be a riot. There was going to be an uproar. Now, in chapter 12, you'll find that in chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 11, Jesus comes, this is six days, six days before Passover, Jesus comes to Lazarus' house and eats supper with him. Eats at Lazarus' house. And there, because Jesus is so close to Lazarus and because Lazarus was raised from the dead, not only did the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus, they decided we need to get rid of the evidence. We need to get rid of the evidence. We need to get rid of Lazarus. So here they plot to kill Lazarus. Imagine that. Lazarus didn't do anything. He was raised from the dead. But yet they wanted to make sure that they squashed this thing down. They got rid of all the evidence. And so they plotted not just to kill Jesus, but we're going to get Lazarus as well so we can get rid of the evidence. And then in chapter 12, verse 12, I want to read this next part. The next day, so this is five days, five days before Passover, because it was six days if you look at the first part of chapter 12. Five days before Passover, notice what happens. The next day, the crowd that had come for the feast, which is the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Word got out. Jesus is on his way. He's on his way. And so the word begins to go out. And so notice what happened. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, what? Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? Save us now. They are crying out to Jesus, the multitude. I'm talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover. Thousands of people are going out to meet him, and they're yelling and screaming out, Hosanna, save us now, save us now, save us now. Now, can you imagine what the religious leaders and the Pharisees are thinking? If we don't do something quickly, 
And Rome is thinking, if we don't do something, there's fixing to be a riot. Because they are now not praying to God to save us and to deliver us from bondage, from Roman tyranny. Now they're calling out to Jesus, save us now. Now notice what he says, what they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word name means blessed is he who comes in the authority of God. This man has the authority of God upon him. He has come in the authority of God. Save us now. You've come in the authority of God. And the Pharisees, I can imagine, are just beside themselves. They're calling on Jesus in the authority of his God, of God to save them. And then notice the next word. Next, notice the next line. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now it's gone from being in the name of God, in the authority of God. Save us in the, by the authority of God that you have. Now there's, they're, they're making it political. Now it's a political thing. Blessed is the king of Israel. Thousands of people are celebrating, and they're probably thinking in their mind, this could be the Passover. This could be the Passover where God delivers us from the tyranny of Roman, of Rome, Roman Empire, as when he did deliver the, us from Egypt bondage. And so the anticipation, the excitement that they want to make him king because he has the authority of God upon him and he, we want him to save us. And then we find, and I want you to go to Luke, the 22nd chapter. Jesus kind of hangs out in Jerusalem, but they can't find him privately. And on Passover, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go find a place away from everybody, away from the crowd. I want you to find a place so I can celebrate Passover with you. Now, I want you to get this picture. They have praised him. They have called him the man who has the authority of God on him. They have called him king. And he goes and celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And as they're breaking bread, I want you to notice verse 20, chapter 22, verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body. Now, for just a moment, think about this. The Israelites have been doing this for 1,500 years. They have been celebrating the Passover. And the purpose of celebrating the Passover was to remember what God did and the deliverance from Egypt. They would sacrifice the lamb. They would sacrifice the lamb. And he, he, he told him, he said, now I want you to make unleavened bread, and I want you to eat unleavened bread on the night 
that the death angel is going to come because I'm going to deliver you from the hand of Pharaoh. So I want you to make unleavened bread, and I want you to eat just unleavened bread. There better not be any leavened bread in the house. Just eat unleavened bread. And so the disciples knew they did it with their fathers. They did it with their grandparents. They did it, you know, for years and years and years. They've been celebrating Passover every year. And it was always to remember the deliverance from Egypt. And then Jesus takes this thing and he said, this is my body given for you, broken for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? In other words, from now on, when you have Passover, you're going to do it remembering me and not remembering what God did when he delivered you from Egypt. It's about me. From here on out, the Passover, when you do this, you got to remember that when you break the bread, it represents my body that is given for you, and I want you to do it from now on in remembrance of me. Now, let's be real. You and I that have been Christians all of our lives, and we were raised up in a particular way, a particular format, a particular way of worshiping, a particular way of doing things. If you were to come to me and say, tonight, from this day forward, we're going to do things, we're going to celebrate the Passover but no longer is it going to be about you and what God did to Egypt, to the Israelites in Egypt, for, to, for the Israelites in Egypt. But we're going to change it now. It's going to be about me. I guarantee you, if I did that, every one of you would get up and leave. And you should. But can you imagine the disciples sitting there and Jesus says, as often as you do it, you're going to do it from here on out in remembrance of me. Not the deliverance from bondage. You're going to do it in remembrance of me. And can you imagine the conversation going on during the supper? Because this is the first part of the supper. And all the communication, maybe the questions, what is he talking about? What does he mean? Can you believe, I mean, that he... We've done this for 1,500 years, and all of a sudden, he is changing it to be about him. And I can imagine maybe they thought, wow, do you reckon that crowd back there that cried out, Hosanna, has kind of warped his thinking? That now it's about him? But they stayed. And then, go on to the next part. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup. Now, they've been doing this all their lives. So when he says this cup, they can automatically say, we know what it's about. We know what this cup represents. It represents the blood of the lamb that was shed. 
and that was splattered on the, over, the, over the door and on the sides of the doorpost. It represents the blood of the lamb that was shattered so that the death angel would not uh, overcome us or take us. Uh, take, uh, take us. And, and so it delivered us. It, it represents the blood of the lamb that was shed for our deliverance. But notice what he says. This cup is the new covenant, the new covenant. That was the old covenant. That was the old covenant. When God delivered the children of Israel from bondage and took them to the prom- and took them to Mount Sinai, he established a new bilateral suzerain treaty or covenant with them. And God was saying, Jesus was saying to his disciples, from here on out, I'm going to establish a new covenant. It was prophesied. It was talked about by Jeremiah. God himself said it. And I'm telling you from here, even though you've done this for 1,500 years, I want you to know today, tonight, this is a new covenant. The cup represents the new covenant. Oh, I love this. The cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my blood. In other words, oh, hallelujah. It's a promissory covenant. It's a promissory covenant. It's not about if you do this, I'll do this. But I want you to know I'm obligating myself to you for the benefit of you. And it's going to be in my blood that is poured out for you. I can't help it. I just get excited. I can't help it. I get excited. And I think of one passage he tells us for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Do not take this out of context. Everything given to you under the old law, everything under the old law is being done away with. Everything under the old law is being done away with. I am now establishing a new covenant with you. And I'm committing myself to you through the giving of my blood for your benefit. I'm going to write my law into your hearts. Now, your service of God is not going to be a matter of the law, but a matter of the conscience. Oh, hallelujah. You got to get this. You got to get this. Now, you're going to look at me and say, well, what about the law? The law was given as a schoolmaster to help us to understand my sinfulness. That no matter how good I am, I'm never good enough. And I never will be good enough. But Jesus was saying, listen, this cup, from here on out, you're not going to celebrate the Passover anymore about the old. I am establishing a new cup covenant with you this covenant was no longer about one nation but this covenant was for all of mankind yes thank you Gene 
Thank the Lord. It includes me. I'm a Gentile. Most of you are Gentiles, if not all of you are Gentiles. And I want you to know what Jesus was saying. Listen, I'm gonna, I'm replacing the old covenant and I'm establishing a new covenant and I'm binding it. I'm binding it. It's a promissory covenant. You don't have to do anything. Oh, oh, I'm telling you, I'm doing it all and I'm doing it in my blood and I'm doing it for the benefit of you and all of mankind. In fact, we find in Hebrews, and I'm going to read this, and this is the last passage I'm going to read, but in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, notice what Paul writes, or the writer of Hebrews. In verse 12, I believe it is, or 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, now remember, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. In other words, I'm doing away with temple worship. Hear what I'm saying. I'm doing away with the way we do it at the temple. In fact, did he not tell his disciples? Did he not tell his disciples? He said, listen, there's not, there's not going to be one stone left upon another here. When you see the, the goodness, you see the glory of this temple, and it was a magnificent temple. And Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. Not one. I'm, it's going to be abolished. Did you know in A.D. 70, A.D. 70, 40 years, about less than 40 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected less than 40 years the temple was completely destroyed not one stone was left upon another and from that point from that point in history till today there has never been another sacrifice temple sacrifice where they sacrifice the animals for forgiveness of sins never Jews don't do it today. They don't do it today. There has never been another sacrifice on an altar in the temple for forgiveness of sin. So Jesus, he says, he went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place Talking about Jesus, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now listen to this. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify, so, unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Get that, outwardly clean. Outwardly clean. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? <laughs> this new covenant that Jesus that promissory covenant that Jesus made, he obligated himself to you, to me. You don't have to do a thing. You don't have to do a thing. 
I'm going to do it all. It's going to be on me. It's going to be on me. But it's going to be for you. And he was sacrificed. And I'm telling you today, that's the reason we worship the person of Jesus Christ. We worship God through the person of Jesus Christ because he poured out his own blood for you, for me. And so when I worship God today, I worship him, God, through the person of Jesus Christ because he established a new covenant that from here on out, and hear what I'm saying, I, I think this is so important. I have replaced the law from Exodus to Malachi. I replaced it, this covenant. I replaced it. Now, I didn't say he did away with the law. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to the place where we need, we recognize, I need, I, I can't do it. And now Jesus cleanses my conscience from dead works so I can serve the living God. And you might say, well, that's so simple. God obligated, Christ obligated himself to me. Obligated himself to me without I mean, and, and then we ask the question, well, what do I need to do then? What do I need to do? What did, what did faith, I mean, what did Abraham do? What did Abraham, when God made the promissory covenant with Abraham, what did Abraham do? He believed. He believed. And it was accredited to him as righteousness. When you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he did die for your sin and my sin, that he was the ultimate sacrifice, that he poured out his blood just for you, that it was a promissory covenant, I'm going to do this for you. Whether you believe or not, I'm going to do it for you anyway. And I'm going to tell you what, when I really begin to understand that God himself, that Christ himself through his son, was saying, listen, I prophesied, I told you about this new covenant that I'm going to establish, and I want you to know I'm doing away with the old, and I'm bringing and establishing a new covenant, and it's going to be through my son, Jesus Christ. And if you'll just believe, you'll be declared righteous. Wow. Is it really that easy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you say, well, what about all this stuff? Listen, and I want you to understand, I don't have to have you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. I, I don't have to have you tell me what I'm doing wrong. The amazing thing is, is that God has wrote his law into my heart and into my mind and has given me a conscience. And God has the ability and the power to convict me. And I'm going to tell you, I know when I'm doing wrong. I know when I'm missing the mark. God reminds me, and sometimes it's more than I want to be reminded. But God reminds me 
You missed it there, Randy. Oh, I know, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? You see, it's different today. I, I, I'm telling you, if you went back to, to Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and you tried to live by the law, you couldn't do it. In fact, you're not doing it today. There's not a one of you that are doing it today. How many of you have mixed clothing on? Mm-hmm. This shirt is not 100% cotton. It's not 100% wool. It's kind of mixed with some polyester or whatever it is. Under the law, I couldn't even wear this. Couldn't wear it. In fact, I couldn't wear it most anything that I have. <laughs> couldn't. My point is, I want you to see what Jesus did for you and why we worship him today. We worship him because he obligated himself for the benefit of you. He sacrificed himself with his own blood for you, for your benefit, for mine. I love him today. I want you to stand. I'd like for the praise team to come. and Brother Wayne, I'd like for you to come if you would. Uh, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to you before, but I'll put you on the spot. You, you're, you're, you're familiar with this. We're going to sing this song, and it's one of the new songs that we've been singing. It's called The Blessing. And we're going to sing maybe the first verses, two verses, whatever it is, whatever he feels led to lead. We're going to sing it. And then we're going to pause for a moment. And during this time, I want you to, I, I, I want you to kind of close your eyes. And I want you to begin to meditate, not on what you have to do this afternoon or next week, but I want you to meditate on Jesus. Jesus obligated himself to you. Whether you believe or not, he obligated himself to you. He obligated himself to you. And he poured out his blood and established a new covenant with you. That's an eternal covenant. It's one that will last for eternity. And he poured out his blood to establish this new covenant, this new relationship with God. And maybe today you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. And you say, well, what must I do? Believe. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. Believe that he was buried in a tomb for three days. Believe that he was resurrected on that third day. And now he's at the right hand of the Father, right hand of God, making intercession for you according to God's will, God's purpose, your benefit. And that if you believe, if you really believe, then you will confess, Jesus, I believe that you died for me, a sinner. I need you. I need you. I believe that, Lord. And if you receive what he did on the cross and what he did in the tomb and what he did at the resurrection, if you receive it to yourself, God says you're saved. God says you have eternal life. 
if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all there is. That's all. That simple? Yes. Because Jesus did all the work himself for your benefit. And so I want you to just kind of think about that. And if you don't know Christ, and maybe God, I do believe this, maybe I do believe that God has written his law upon your mind and in your heart. And maybe during this meditation time, this kind of quiet time, maybe God will speak to your heart about something. Don't fight it. Just ask the Lord, God, you're right. You're right. I missed it there, and I'm sorry. I'd like for you to forgive me. And the amazing thing about it is God does. He just does. He doesn't make you come down here and do 20 push-ups. He doesn't come down here and make you confess to me and everyone else. No, you just got to confess to him. He makes it so simple. And yet we make it so complicated. So I want to challenge you. Let God speak to you today. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, let God speak in this time as we sing this song and worship. Thanks for listening to the St. Mary's Church Podcast. If you made a decision to follow Jesus today or have more questions about following Jesus, we have pastors who want to talk with you. Connect with us at stmaryschurch.net or through social media on Facebook or Instagram. We can't wait to hear what Jesus is doing in you.